Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. We have uh, Dr. Paldeep Atwal. He's a board-certified clinical and medical biochemical geneticist. Uh, We're going to talk about um, possibly Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and his current work and research. So, Paldeep, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Tell me about your, your background, and then I want to ask you about your current research. Yeah, sure. So, as you said, I'm a physician. So, medical. I went to medical school, and then I specialized after some basic training in general medicine. I specialized in genetics, so clinical genetics. That's the management of individuals with rare genetic conditions, such as connective tissue disorders like Marfan, Ehlers-Danlos, children with developmental disorders, mitochondrial diseases, for example. And, and then I did another year of training as a biochemical geneticist specializing in errors of metabolism. Uh, often children are born with these problems from, and they're detected at birth or shortly after birth. You said errors um, of metabolism? What does that mean? Correct. Basically, there might be an enzyme or a step in in the pathway to break down certain proteins or fats or carbohydrates. And if that step for a genetic reason doesn't work properly, then you get that, that can lead to problems, a buildup of that substance that could be toxic or it could cause other problems, developmental problems. And, that, and that's interesting. That, so the, that's the person looks error. normal, but there's something Correct. going wrong with one of their digestive pathways. So over time, Correct. they'll lead to a buildup or a deficit or something that affects them. That's right. Yeah. And, and it could be over time. It could be more acute. And they actually could result in physical features as well. Sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, so it's, it's, they're extremely varied. There's literally thousands of inborn errors of metabolism. Very interesting. Okay. Keep going, please. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then after that, I worked two years at the Mayo Clinic, working as the medical director of the Individualized Medicine Clinic for a few years. Then I went to uh, start my own practice after that. And I've been doing that ever since. And it's great. And I'm really focusing now on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and mitochondrial diseases. So that's the two main areas of focus. Yeah. Can we start out with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? You know, it's, it's a hypermobility tissue disorder when I understand. Um, what's your understanding of it? What are you working on in regards to it? Yeah. So so the it's a connective tissue disorder or hereditary connective tissue disorder, meaning that it's genetic. And basically, it's a difference in collagen 
and how collagen is built in the body. Collagen is the most abundant protein we have. It's in you know all, all sorts of connective tissue. You can think of the connective tissue like the scaffolding of the body. And it kind of holds everything in place and keeps everything where it should be, connects things, hence the term connective tissue. And so with hypermobile LS Danlos, the that collagen is just built slightly differently. There's the cross-linking between the collagen fibers isn't isn't as robust. So you get laxity of the joints, you get looseness of the of the of the connective tissue. So you're able to be much more flexible, but that results often in joint pain and fatigue from the supporting muscles. And you can have other features as well. Um, like dysautonomic features, POTS, GI motility issues, mast cell issues. A lot of the, a lot of that we're still trying to figure out how they're all connected. But these are common features. What, is, what so have I, you seen as the correlation of age and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Yeah, so typically the presentation of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, at least, isn't immediate. Uh, so it's not, it's not at birth or anything like that. Typically, it's in the teenage years to kind of the mid to late 30s is the typical age where people present with symptoms. There's a couple of, a couple of theories that there's some research going on right now to look into this actually, but a couple of theories on that, it could be sex hormone related. Often puberty seems to be the trigger for a lot of the symptoms coming on. Sometimes it's before that, but certainly towards the end of puberty, eight, you know, into the adult years seems to be when people start manifesting. Well, what about someone that has it and let's say now they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s? What if you, is it progressive with age or does it, you know, once the person has it, it's kind of stable with them their whole life? Yes, it's a great question. And it's actually a very common question. The thing about hypermobile LS Danlos is it depends on how you manage it, what happens. So there's a lot of control that the individual with it has. For some people, more than others, of course, everyone is different. But the more you manage it, do the right things, physical conditioning, avoid any things like impact exercises, you can stabilize and, and optimize the medical management, reduce the pain, reduce the fatigue, increase the quality of life. You can. It doesn't necessarily need to be progressive in that sense. Obviously, it can be progressive for some, particularly when the certain protective features aren't instigated or followed. But sometimes even if they are, there still can be some progression. So that's not always the case you can halt the progression, but by and large, you, you can halt it or you can't even reverse some of it. So you've seen patients in their, what, 60s, 70s that are living with it and they're still okay? Yes, absolutely. Because it's a very wide spectrum of, of huge spectrum, in fact. The prevalence or the incidence that's quoted in the medical textbooks is something like, or medical literature, something like one in 5,000. But the reality is it's much more common than that. I would say probably five times more common, or some people even say more than that, but probably at least one in a thousand people. So, And the spread, like how many people have it, is may, much more than you actually see getting that, getting diagnosed. So there's some people that are, they don't even know they have it. They have some joint issues, they have some dizziness episodes, they have some GI stuff they're managing. They're, and they're managing, they're getting through it. Sometimes it's they're struggling, but they're getting through with no diagnosis. And if they ever they go to their average doc who looks at them and you know they're, they're, it's unlikely they'll, they'll put those apparently disparate symptoms together as part of a rare uh, hereditary right. connection. Most supplements are taken on faith and can take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality wild harvested 
non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at GeniusPollen.com. Are there other other disorders that a percentage of that population is likely to be EDS? Uh, for instance, chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, is there a percentage of that population that use you know your suspicion says probably have EDS? Poss- yes, possibly that one. And then I think another one is the people that are classified as fibromyalgia. Often I see patients who have been told they have fibromyalgia. And really, it's quite clear that they have clear joint hypermobility. They've got some the dysautonomic features as well. And they really better fit a diagnosis of hypermobility EDS. I suspect there's probably some others as well. That, but the, those are the main ones, I would say. The one you mentioned and then, and then fibromyalgia are the two common diagnoses that often misdiagnoses. Yeah, why, uh, why do people with EDS or hypermobility experience fatigue, by the way? Yeah. Okay. So there's four major manifestations for the muscles. Uh, The the first is fatigue. And that's actually the most common one. If you think about it, each joint in the body has an intrinsic kind of stability to it, right? Now, if that intrinsic stability is less than average, then the supporting muscles around the joint have to make up for that lack of stability by supporting more and doing more work or effort. And now that's the 24-hour job that they're suddenly got more of. So unsurprisingly, they get, you get fatigue. That can often be very debilitating, one of the biggest symptoms and the, one of the most common symptoms. The other ones are pain, muscle spasm, and also altered sensation across the muscles. So, so the, but the fatigue is the most common one. So it's like a, a workout to varying degrees all day, all night, yes. because of the muscles having to do the job Correct. partially of tendons, ligaments, et cetera, right? Yes, and not, not to say the tendons and ligaments aren't doing something. They are, but they're not doing what, what the amount they would do with uh, more cross-linked collagen uh, with, uh, in someone who would, does not have hypermobility as. So the muscles huh. just have to do more. So why, why does this happen? You said it's, it appears to be hereditary and genetic. Is this, uh, so how does this manifest at the, like the chromosome level? Or you know, how yeah, can you so- tell the genetic issue? That's a great, great question. So taking a step back, there's 14 known subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Hypermobile type is one of those 14. It's actually, it's also the most common type. It's, it's by far the most common type. If you add up all of the other types and <laughs> combine them, hypermobile EDS would still be more common. So it really dwarfs the others in terms of incidence. It also is the only type that we have not found the genetic basis for. So we haven't found, you know, another way of saying that, we haven't found the gene for it yet. The other, other 14 types, we found the gene for, for them. We know it's genetic because of the overlap with the other types that we've identified a molecular genetic cause for. We've also, you, we can also see that it runs in families in a dominant manner. So often you'll see it in many generations of, fa- of family members, grandparents, parents, children, aunts, uncles, etc. So localizes to families and, and, and uh, is inherited in a, apparently dominant fashion, meaning it's not just siblings, it's not just mother to son or to daughter, it can be either parent to either child. So is it suspected to be genetic or is it known to be genetic? You just don't know which which part of it. I think it's generally accepted it is genetic. Okay. We haven't How do you know the, if you don't know where, where in the genome it's, it's happening? Yeah, that's a fair, it's a fair question. If you take a step back and look at the medical genetics of 20 years ago, you'd find all these syndromes that were described as clearly genetic syndromes. We didn't not we didn't have the genetic sequencing capability to find those, find the molecular cause for those syndromes. 
that didn't mean they weren't genetic. That just meant we couldn't find the, gen- the genetic cause. Uh, there's around 20,000 genes in, in humans. And we know the function as it relates to human health and disease of about 5,000 of them. Uh, so there's more genes that we don't know the function of than we do. Every Probably every month, we, there's a gene, dis- gene discovery or publishing of a new gene associated with new disease or condition. So there's, I mean, there's constant progress and actually the pace of that progress is accelerating, but we still don't know the molecular cause for every single condition. That doesn't mean we, we, we say that it's not genetic uh, because we can't find the cause. And in fact, there are some people who are looking at the cause uh, just now and can't verify anything, but I've heard reports of uh, a couple of groups potentially finding some molecular cause for hypermobility, yes, uh, even even now, but it's it's not been, that data hasn't been verified yet. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. So are there, um, you know, as a doctor, are you prescribing medications for people with EDS? Are you prescribing, um, you know, certain exercises? Like when you talked about this fatigue, I imagined it would be good for people with EDS, maybe not even to swim, but to to sit in a pool or a flotation tank that would take the weight off their muscles regularly. All of the above, actually. It's all all great. Uh, So what typically do my role as a clinical geneticist is to first diagnose so put all the features together, tell them that they are diagnosed with the condition and they have the condition. Often that's the one of the biggest steps for a patient because they've been from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist, often told can't find anything wrong or misdiagnosed or, or you know, we, perhaps it's not even an organic cause, it's some sort of psychiatric cause. I've, I've heard everything <laughs> at this point. And so the patients are very demoralized and, and not, um, and you know, almost losing faith and trust in the medical profession. So by the time they, they see a geneticist and, and me, and I tell them they have the, the diagnosis, it's a, one is frankly validation and relief because they know they have it. Uh, they know they've done the research. They've dedicated many, many hours uh, to to and uh, to find out the diagnosis. And then then we talk about a couple of things, things not to do. So impact type exercises that are really not 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 so good for their joints maximal stretching that really pushes the muscles supporting those joints to the limit we want to we want to minimize that and then uh, we do the genetic testing to make sure we're not missing any of the other subtypes or other types of connective tissue condition that can cause vascular fragility um uh, aneurysms etc and yeah i know there's uh, many different kinds of eds and i'm sure the more severe ones yeah they affect Maybe the integrity of the organs, the integrity of the blood vessels and all that. And that would be a very big problem. 
Yes, yeah, so we, sure. we want to make sure they don't have those types. Uh, so that's that's the main purpose of the genetic test. That's to rule them out. What, what's the name of the genetic test and uh, what does it elucidate? Okay, yeah. So there's there's many different, well, there's a couple of different names that are used depending on the company. So for example, there's a one company that calls a connective tissue gene panel, one company that calls a thoracic aneurysm and fragility panel. Uh, one company will call it, a, just call it Ehlers-Danlos panel. Depends on exactly what genes you want to include in that. And often that's dependent on the patient themselves and the, what the presentation is that they're, that they're coming with. But in, in general, it's um, some sort of connective tissue uh, aortopathy panel. And there's a multi, it's a multi-gene panel. So there'll be 20 plus genes on there that will be looking at all the subtypes of EDS. They might be looking at other similar presentations, Marfan syndrome. Do, uh, do, most practitioners, do most practitioners know about genetic testing or can they refer people or is it mysterious still? It's fairly mysterious still. Often I'm referred to patients just so they can get the testing ordered because ordering the testing is actually difficult in itself. Second, and that's number one. Second, knowing which test to order. There's thousands of genetic tests out there in the market. Knowing which one is the right one for the, that particular patient is also challenging. Um, so yeah, often it's navigating the complexities of ordering genetic testing, but also understanding the results of genetic testing, because you can get these variants of uncertain significance that are not necessarily challenging to to review, but represent some challenge and require decent level of background in, in medical genetics to interpret. Hmm, okay. But you're familiar with the uh, the tests that someone could take to find out what kind of EDS they have, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I do that every day, every single day. So um, if people have various forms, what, what are some of the treatments? Are, are there any? Or is it just management of the condition? Like, you know, again, depending on what kind of EDS someone has, what can you help them do? Yeah, well, w- one of the th- things I'll say for EDS is, yes, there's no cure, but many conditions, there's no cure. For example, let's say diabetes or coronary artery disease, there's no cure for those conditions. But, but we wouldn't say, well, there's no point in treating it because there's no cure. Right? <laughs> so so there, there's plenty of things you can do that are management. So for example, I talked about the things not to do. To your point, uh, physical conditioning exercises that build up the strength in those supporting muscles significantly re- reduce the pain and fatigue. That's been proven many, many times. Swimming actually is a good exercise. Walking in the pool, hi, you know, aqua, aqua aerobics, those kind of exercises. Working with a knowledgeable physical therapist, looking at their biomechanics, correcting any maladaptions the body has. Managing the dysautonomic features, the POTS type symptoms, the GI motility issues, temperature dysregulation, mast cell issues. There's, so, there's a host of things that can be done to re- minim- reduce the symptoms and uh, generally try and improve their quality of life. Yeah, can we talk more about uh, what is mast cell uh, issues? What does that mean? Yeah. What are some of these other issues you discussed? We went through fatigue. We went through, obviously, you can hyperextend and overwork your muscles and probably you know, pull them or tear them quite easily or more easily than regular people. But Correct. what about um, you know, POTS and these other conditions? Yeah, so one of the most common things you see is dysautonomia. So that's kind of an umbrella term, dysautonomia meaning dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, the part of the nervous system that we don't consciously have to manage, but it does things automatically for us. For example, controlling our blood pressure, digesting our food, regulating our body temperature, those kind of things. So we're not actively thinking about those things, but it's they're happening. 
So hence the term autonomic or uh, nervous system. Uh, not to say they don't work. They do work, but they work maybe 90 to 95% of wh- where they should. So if you stand up too fast, you might get dizzy. You might feel like you're going to faint. You might even faint digesting your food. Sometimes it might be too fast. Sometimes it might be too slow. Sometimes, sometimes it might be okay. And, um, or sometimes it just is constantly going back and forth. Temperature, you struggle uh, with, you know, if it's a little bit too hot, a little bit too cold, you, you really don't like that. And, and your body can't regulate that very as well as, let's say, someone who doesn't have that, uh, those issues. Mast cell issues. The mast cell is an immune cell and uh, it secretes uh, m- multiple things, tryptase, histamine. And these, these are, uh, can cause immune reactions. They can cause sensitivities to certain things, foods, smells, chemicals, and a balance like anything. Too little of it is bad. Too much of it is also too bad. So we're in the too much category. So you get reactions to things you shouldn't be reacting with. Not necessarily allergy itself, but but sensitivities and, and reactions. And sometimes those sensitivities are unpredictable. So one time it's fine, and one time you don't. You actually are flaring or having a, a major reaction to things. It could be itching, rashes, camp, um, hive type episodes, or even anaphylaxis on rare occasions. Does um does EDS symptoms seem to come and go according to any pattern, or is it? appear apparently random but again does it have a cyclical nature or a um, a waxing waning type nature there can be so some people do report a waxing waning nature and typically you can often see that with um, influence of sex hormones uh, so hence the interesting on, onset for some people during puberty as well so often patients re- will report changes in their severity of their symptoms depending on where they are in their menstrual cycle. Um, so there's definitely a hormonal component to it. That seems to be more for some than others, though. Is it uh, more women affected than men, or is it equal? There's definitely far more women that, are, that tend to manifest than men. I think, I'm not sure exactly the reasons for that. I think there's multiple reasons. Testosterone appears to have a protective effect. And uh, I think one of the things that may be factoring in as Men, on average, are tend to be less flexible than, than women. On average, of course, as men, they're more, more flexible than women and vice versa, of course. And then men, on average, on average, again, tend to have more muscle mass. So less flexibility, more muscle mass seems to be protective against Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which makes sense in the pathobiology of the condition. But, of course, you'll see men manifesting as well. So it's not the case. That it's, I, I don't know the exact ratio, but it's definitely... Um, there's definitely many more women than the manifest men. Well, how does it manifest clinically differently in men versus women? Um, I'm not sure it manifests clinically differently. It's the same issues, joint pain, subluxations, GI issues, uh, dizziness episodes, POTS type stuff, mast cell issues. So I'm not sure it manifests differently, uh, but it manifests less. I think it appears to manifest less frequently in men. But the, the, the symptoms, from my experience as a clinician, seeing an individuals with hyaluronic every day, it seems, for, to me, it's, it's very similar in presentation. I, don't, I can't really think of something that's different in men and women. Uh, what about supplementation to mitigate the effects? Um, should you know, people with EDS possibly take collagen to supplement maybe the, uh, you know, the lack of collagen or if their collagen's misfolded, will that help them? Yeah, so I get that question all the time. And I think to answer the question, it's not a lack of collagen necessarily that's the issue. It's the way the collagen is bound together. So adding more collagen isn't necessarily going to change the way it's bound together. So it doesn't seem to 
I haven't I haven't seen any robust studies that show that additional collagen appear uh, helps. Now, co- adding collagen to your diet doesn't seem to have major downsides. So, so if a patient is insistent on trying it, I really, you know, I don't have a problem with that. But I only tend to recommend things that I know from prior evidence definitely work. And I, I don't see that the case for collagen supplements at this time. Maybe that'll change in the future. I don't know. But right now, I, it's not something I routinely recommend. Well, is there any dietary um, path that you do recommend or a supplement path or medicine, you know, medical path? Yeah, I wish there was something um, pill or some, of some sort that would be beneficial. Nothing specific to treating the underlying cause of EDS. Now, there might be something to manage the GI stuff or the mast cell issues or the POTS management, but no, nothing specific to dealing with the underlying connective tissue laxity. Now, there, are, there, are, there have been some drugs and clinical trials being looked at. Uh, I can't obviously can't comment on them, but but uh, there's nothing that's uh, approved for use that I've come across. Well, genetically, have you looked? Have you um, you know looked at maybe the karyotype of people? I, yeah. You know, I, I know one lady that has a uh, I believe chromosome six and uh, seventeen or something like that. Six and twenty four okay. have little bits that are switched, swapped. Yes, yeah, so she appears to be phenotypically normal. But is that common? Things like that. So balanced translocations like that are common in the pop- in the general population. Th- there's no evidence they are in- have an increase- increased frequency in Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So she could may well have a balanced translocation that's not causing her any issues and also have EDS. Uh, whether There's nothing that's shown that that plays into the getting the condition. Typically, you know, with the genetic testing that's been done, those kind of differences would come up, missing chromosomes or micro deletions or duplications or sex chromosome abnormalities as well. They're not typically observed when, when doing the genetic testing. Okay. Well, what, what do you think the genetic basis is? Is it an epigenetic change? You know, there's excessive methylation of certain genes or does anyone know? Is it an epigenetic thing? Is it a, what could be causing this problem? Is there a protein translation type error? What is yeah, so all of all of them could be factors actually, and and that might be one of the reasons it's been more difficult to find the genetic cause of this subtype than the others. There's also limitations with current sequencing technology. There's certain types of genetic variation that are very hard to detect. Complex structural rearrangements, deletions, not in the kilobase length and not in the uh, one to ten length. The kind of you know. 500 to 1,000 base pair deletion, much harder to detect. So there, there, there are limitations with current sequencing technology that plays into that. But to your point, there may be other mechanisms. It's not, it may not be just the underlying DNA sequence that's issue. It could be a post-translational RNA type issue, or it could also be a methylation problem, control of gene expression, epigenetic mechanism. So like I said, there's a couple of groups now that are, it sounds like making some progress in the genetic basis. So it'll be exciting to see what they come up with in the next, hopefully, you know, hopefully this year. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Mm, okay. Well, what's, um, I don't know, what are you, do you feel like you're making inroads into the treatments or is it just you're managing people, but not a lot is known? Like what's kind of the, the, the clinical state of affairs as you see it? We are making inroads for, for sure. Yeah, but it's going to be challenging until, until there's a, I think all of it has to come from the genetic basis of the condition. And then we can go from there, like we can kind of back engineer treatment based on knowing what's, what's going on molecularly, if that makes sense. Or gotcha. reverse engineers, reverse engineers. So that's sort of thing. <laughs> are, there, are there other common questions you get? I seem to have accidentally hit on a few, but 
are there other ones we haven't talked about that a lot of people ask you? Um, actually, these are the main ones: management, the testing. Why there's no? Why won't we find the gene? Uh, what's the relationship with the other features? Yeah, that's the main things. Okay. Um, well, very good. Uh, if people need help and they suspect they have EDS, um, what kind of a practitioner should they go to? I know, you know, the whole world can't go to you, but um, yes, if they were to come to you, first of all, wouldn't you? And then, second of all, if they're looking for a practitioner, what do they look for? What is it called? Like, what do you, what uh, do you call the doctors that work on this call? So, geneticists are typically the types of doctors that make the diagnosis, but then other professionals, cardiologists to help with the POTS, allergy, immunologists to help with the mast cell issues, GI, motility docs, physical therapists, physical medicine rehab physicians. You Typically, it's a team of people. The occupational therapists, there's typically a team of people that are involved in helping. Yeah, what about like rheumatologists or, you know, again, if yeah, someone yeah. suspects they have, um, they have this and they don't want to go from doctor to doctor to doctor, who can they go to that would have maybe the highest likelihood of being able to to tell them if they actually do have EDS or not. All right, yeah. So I think the rheumatologists, certainly, typically they deal with other autoimmune inflammatory conditions like arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, those kind of things. But often someone will go to a end up with a rheumatologist first, and then that the, then they will be referred to someone else. Or often the rheumatologists themselves will make the diagnosis. I think also it's good. To it's really important to have a really good primary care physician to help with the management. So. So the, these are all things that, that affect the, uh, these are all types of doctors that are uh, medical professionals that, that uh, play a role. But uh, like I said, it's, it's, there's a lot of people that can be involved. Neurologists, for example, to help with some of the dysautonomy as well. Sleep specialists, sleep is often an issue. Oh, we didn't talk about that if we could for a brief moment. How yeah, is sleep sure. affected in people with ADS? People have a lot of sleep issues, poor sleep, poor sleep, poor rest recovery, not able to go to sleep, feeling that they haven't got enough restorative sleep. Some people even get sleep apnea. So, well, I can see if like the tissues of the throat are also hypermobile or misfolded, then maybe the throat's more amenable to collapse during sleep. So maybe snoring and apnea or upper airway restrictive problems would happen more with EDS patients. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's one of the mechanisms. Yeah. So I'll often refer to a sleep specialist for further investigation and management on sleep. Hmm, okay. Well, very good. Well, uh, pretty again. How can people reach you if they want help? Where can they go? They can go to our website www.atwalclinic.com, or they can send us an email, give us a call. We'd be happy to help if they have concerns about EDS. Okay, and Atwal is A T W A L. Yeah, atwalclinic.com. That's right. Yeah. All right. Very good. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this call. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Remember, before you go to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing all-natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to GeniusPollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit GeniusPollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.